Today on Act News Daily. States also support research as demonstration projects and pilot programs. And those uh, capture that diversity that Marty talked about, uh, where, my goodness, agriculture is so different across the United States. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, we have a big report out tomorrow for the commodity markets. I know you've been in grad school now looking or studying more in the ag business and ag marketing field. We've got the quarterly grain stocks and prospective plantings report tomorrow. So it could be a big market mover. So it'll be exciting to see that report come out tomorrow. And Ashton, if you will, sorry, I feel like I'm talking a lot. I just wanted to mention here, the average trade guesses as far as acreage goes are a 93.14 million acres for corn and a 90.1 million acre estimate for soybeans. So we will see what the USDA says as of tomorrow. Well, Delaney, I have some more exciting things for folks to put on their calendars, although this is concerning next week, which is agronomy week. So that week is from April 5th to April 9th, and it's aimed towards saluting agronomic professionals who play a key role in supporting farmer success. But this year's week-long celebration, which is hosted for the fifth consecutive year by Decalb, Ascro, and Delta Pine brands will feature a new FFA scholarship program culminating in an exciting live television event. So I'm pretty excited about this because new to Agronomy Week this year is the Agronathon, which will air from 9 to 11 p.m. CDT on Thursday, April 8th on RFD TV. So if you don't have that extension, you might want to call into your TV providers to see if you can get it because they're raising FFA scholarship funds for agronomy students. So some good news for you know those FFA kids who are looking to go into an agronomy degree or an agronomy career. And thank goodness for them, Ashton, because that was not one of my favorite classes in college, plant science. Yeah, I got to say, I the agronomy stuff that I have done, not my favorite thing, but I'm very grateful for those agronomists who are in the industry because they're definitely a key cog to the overall machine of the ag industry. They certainly are, Ashton. They certainly are. But I tell you what, let's get into some other ag news here. I will take things over to down to South America, I should say, since we're talking about prospective plantings and acreage reports. Of course, we've got to talk about another area that goes hand in hand with those reports, and that is the country of Brazil as well as Argentina. But specifically, Brazil here has seen some drier weather. That has allowed soybean harvest to speed up pretty quickly here for Brazilian farmers. And according to consulting firm AgRural, Brazil harvested just 71% of their country's total planted area as of Thursday of last week. So they are still slightly behind pace for this time of year compared to 76% this time last year, but harvest is moving right along and is virtually complete in their Mato Grosso area, which is the largest soybean state in the country, and yields are better than I think folks were expecting. So it does seem that even though we had some delays this year for soybean harvest down there in Brazil, sounds like record yields 
are definitely in sight for Brazil, which is not so favorable for the marketplace. But we'll continue to watch that story, see how that news plays out, as well as tomorrow's market reports. Ashton? Well, Delaney, one question on a lot of people's minds concerning COVID-19 has repeatedly been whether or not there were cases of COVID-19 before they were reported in late 2019 and, of course, throughout 2020. And it is, quote, perfectly possible that COVID-19 cases were circulating in November or October 2019 around Wuhan, China. The leader of a World Health Organization mission said earlier today, potentially leading to the disease spreading abroad earlier than documented. And like I said, this has been kind of a question on everyone's mind on whether or not this was actually happening because I have heard quite a bit about, um, you know, people at least, you know, close, close to me about them being sick after, you know, the Fort Worth stock show, which was in early 2020 about them, you know, feeling real sick after for about two weeks there, but just kind of signing it off as the barn crud. But it could be possible that it was COVID-19, although I'm not, you know, saying for sure or not, but this team is still working on finding the exact traceback of the virus before Wuhan According to Peter Ben Emberek, who is a WHO official specialized in zoonotic diseases, who led this four-week mission of international experts to China earlier this year in January and February during a virtual press conference. So COVID-19 is still not going away. So hopefully we will get some of those questions answered on to whether or not this really could have been, you know, playing in the global realm at an earlier rate than we originally thought. Yeah, and I think it absolutely was, you know, well, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't, I don't know, but I think I know a lot of people that were like, well, you know, I got sick, you know, in December, January, maybe it was from COVID-19, maybe it wasn't. I think a lot of people have doubts now after uh, COVID-19's kind of rocked our world, Ashton. But let's see, in other news, I'm trying to see what else I got on the newswire today. Not a whole lot going on, to be honest. I've been watching mostly to see what markets have been doing ahead of tomorrow's report. Um, but I did actually talk with Eric Snodgrass earlier today, Ashton. We talked um, a little bit more about weather for the mobile app that I run here at Trader PhD. And he is saying, he's suggesting that we will see a pretty mild spring for planting this year. We'll probably have some wet weather, but he said nothing like we saw in 2019. So guys, I think can take a little bit of a breath of fresh air there. Uh, but he did also say, Ashton, that we're not going to have a perfect growing season. A lot of folks, you know, are hoping that this year was going to be the year because we had 2018, 19, and 20 with pretty rough seasons. But we definitely will not have a perfect year this year, could have some pretty hot and dry. I don't know. It's going to be interesting. That's for sure. It certainly will be. And I know that that has been on a lot of people's minds, a lot of farmers' minds, I should say, on what this season is going to look like. But we'll just have to keep an eye out on that as the weather rolls in. But Delaney, I just have one other story to talk about today coming from Argentina. The South American country said yesterday that it had suspended 15 meat exporters for dodging industry regulations, derailing at least 40 tons of shipments from one of the world's best-known beef producers. 
The country's ag ministry said in a statement that it had uncovered several meat export operations that had undercut competitors and evaded taxes by failing to properly register their businesses within the state. The report did not list the names of the companies involved or the destinations of the exports. And an agriculture ministry spokesman declined to comment further. State prosecutors would begin preparing formal complaints shortly once inspections are completed, the ministry said in their, in their statement. So we don't know exactly who is involved in this, but hopefully as the story unfolds a little bit more, we get to know some more of those details. Fantastic, Ashton. Well, I tell you what, other than talking markets for today, I don't really have any other news. So what do you say we hop right into it? Let's get into it. All right. Well, we had two days really this week so far now of seeing markets react pre-report that comes out tomorrow at 11 a.m. Central Time. Ashton, we should be good about or we should try and be a little more diligent about tweeting out the results of that report. Hopefully we remember to do that. But if we don't, we'll definitely be talking about it tomorrow on the podcast. And it's I don't know. I think the overall consensus is that acreage numbers probably aren't going to be anything too exciting. The excitement should lie more in what we see for quarterly grain stock numbers. And markets have been selling off a little bit ahead of that report. The May corn contract down seven and a half cents today to close at 539 and a quarter. The Dece down eight and three quarters cents to close at 552 and a half. And in soybeans today, the May contract down 26 and a quarter cent tickles at 1366 and three quarters. In November down 18 and a quarter cent tickles at 1186 and a quarter. Chicago wheat also lower today as the May contract down 15 cents tickles at 601 and three quarters. The Dece down 11 and a half tickles at 607 and three quarters. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock pits today, we had a little bit of an adjustment. Turnaround Tuesday, you could say, in the live cattle markets, as we saw the April contract unchanged to end at 12097. The June corrected 42.5 cents lower to close at 122.22 and a half. And in feeder cattle today, the April contract shedding 25 cents to close at 146.82 and a half. The May unchanged today to close at 152.20. And lean hogs today higher as the April contract added 55 cents to close at $100.92 and a half cents. The May up a dollar 17 and a half to close at 101.62 and a half. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. The March, excuse me, the April unchanged today to close at 17.17. The May up two cents to close at 17.52. Without further ado, Ashton, fill us in on what we're talking about for today's hashtag Tech Tuesday interview. Today we have part two of three of the summit audio talking about carbon credit. Well, as, as we know, the point of our whole discussion is reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, that means uh, in, in carbon sequestration. That means uh, more carbon in the soil. Reduce, uh, and uh, but some of the some of the first markets are actually paying not based on the actual carbon that's been sequestered, but the practices like cover crops, no-till, uh, that sort of thing. And there's there's a little bit of a debate going on about whether it's realistic to pay for uh, the actual carbon that a farmer is sequestering or whether you should pay based on practices. Uh, I want to put that question to our panel. Of, is, it, is it 
is it makes sense just to pay on the, for a suite of practices that a farmer uh, undertakes, or, or do we need to measure? And how far are we away from really getting reliable um, methods and tools for measuring? Uh, there are some USDA has developed one uh, that uh, at least one of the markets is using. But uh, where are we? There's a lot of research, as we know, still going on in this, and a lot of questions uh, still to be answered. Um, Marty? I think we start with uh, with the fact that, it, that no two farms are the same, but we also acknowledge that practices are what drive changes. And so if we, if we change practices, we can expect changed outcomes. And so that's what we, we evaluate. Farmers that are already engaged in progressive practices that, reduce, that return carbon to the soil should be rewarded. Farmers who aren't should be incentivized, and, so, and those should be locally indexed based upon our best assessments. From a practical standpoint, we just can't measure soil carbon accurately or, or at a large enough scale to use that as our primary mechanism for, uh, for providing uh, a, a revenue stream. But the practices for particular soils, particular climates, for particular cropping systems, we have a, a fairly robust ability to, to understand what those benefits would be and then to index that to some benefit. And back to our previous question about, uh, about incentivizing with markets, uh, there are a number of ways to, to achieve what Secretary Vilsack described as the resiliency of our farms, uh, which means to increase profit. It's not just about giving more another revenue stream. Another revenue stream that has a whole bureaucracy associated with it is not necessarily going to be attractive to farmers, but farmers every day pay cost. And they pay costs for uh, one of the most, uh, it's a very complex business model, farming. One of the most common costs is risk management. Uh, Secretary indicated that. The cost of 85% protection of a corn crop doubled. The cost doubled per acre this year because of price volatility. A farmer is now paying, what, from paying 12 bucks an acre to 25, over $25 an acre for the cost of crop insurance at 85% uh, price protection this year. And soybeans went from nine to thirteen dollars an acre. We simply can provide credits. Starting, we, we don't have to provide direct payments. Just provide credits for that cost for those farmers who are engaged in these practices, and we reduce their cost, which is effectively paying them. And so, there are a number of things we can do with the systems we have in place today uh, to, uh, to achieve half the cost of that forty dollars an acre estimated cost of, of 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 achieving transformation. We can do that with crop insurance today. Mm-hmm. Marty, follow up for you. What what kind of range are we talking about in terms of regional differences? If you base there some kind of payment on the practice based on what we think the impact is on soil carbon, what kind of range of differences are we talking about? I mean, you know, we, we're hearing for farmers in the dry areas of the Western Plains, the Pacific Northwest, Central Valley of California, uh, where they that the, the, you know. Concerns that cover crops will compete with uh, compete with their cash crop for water. Yep. Uh, so what kind of range are we talking about here? In oh, it's it's a big country. It's a big country. Uh, we cover a, a dramatic range of climate characteristics, soil characteristics, and crop practices. So the range is, uh, you know, if, if I put a number on it, I'm going to say a three orders of magnitude range of, of potential from the deep glacial loss of, of uh, Illinois to the uh, sandy soils of the of the Central Valley, to the turdy soils of Missouri, uh, huge range. 
that range represents a, a bountiful ver versatility and, and, and diversity in our cropping systems, but also challenges. So that's why we must never paint with a broad brush. We must never assume there's a simple single solution for all agriculture. Cover crops are great. We all ought to use cover crops. No, some, some places they don't work like because they're competing for water as a particular area. Uh, No-till no solutions are great, except for some places where they can't be applied because of soil characteristics or other pressures. And so there, we have to understand that agriculture is hard and it's complex. And we must provide, as, as Barb said, we must provide the farmers with the freedom, the elbow room to innovate uh, and so that we have a, a mechanism to evaluate the effectiveness of their practices. And we also have, the, have to have the freedom to fail. We have to, have, we have to be able to experiment, to try things and see if they work or if they don't work. And if they don't work, there shouldn't, it shouldn't be a punitive system. It should be an educational process where we iterate and we learn and we get better. That continuous improvement strategy has worked pretty well for us for 150 years. We need to keep that as our mantra. We are getting better every day because we try things and we share our knowledge and we try it. If it, do, if it doesn't work, we change and we go try something else. Hmm. Uh, Barb, uh, Frank, uh, what about the question of paying for practices versus uh, paying for soil carbon sequestered? Frank, you, you want to go ahead? Did you want me to go, Phil? Go ahead, Barb. Okay. Um, obviously, what we're talking about here is um, is the scientific basis for, for knowing that that practice does have that impact. And um, so I think that uh, NASDA, obviously, all of us here, we support a science-based approach um, in providing um, uh, an understanding about different practices. I guess I would say that um, science and the metrics are critical. We need more funding to continue to conduct amazing research and uh, a lot of research is being done and supporting the private sector efforts on uh, carbon banking uh, right now. But states also support research as demonstration projects and pilot programs. And those uh, capture that diversity that Marty talked about uh, where my goodness, agriculture is so different across the United States. And so the challenge is to do the meta-analysis, bring all that data together. So it's truly big data, I guess, frankly, mm -hmm. too. And so how do, uh, how do we um, then apply that to our, our farming systems? Having a patchwork of approaches uh, sounds pretty daunting to us at NASDA in our 50 states. Oftentimes we want one approach, but I think we're going to be looking at, um, you know, reacting to that diversity of ag and then uh, supporting, uh, I guess, a, a modeling approach. I've heard Marty and Frank both talk about those for the future to, to provide uh, benefit and uh, account for carbon for farmers and ranchers. Hmm. Yeah, Phil, <clears throat> some practices are relatively easy to quantify with respect to their effectiveness on reducing carbon or sequester carbon. For example, the, uh, what I talked about earlier, the conversion of biogas to uh, renewable natural gas, when you capture the biogas from a covered lagoon, mm -hmm. that's easy to enumerate because um, you get paid for the biogas you produce. You actually sell the fuel to the vehicle fleet. And so this is not some creative accounting or greenwashing. This is a product you produce, you produce mm -hmm. a certain amount of gas that's made into fuel. And um, for example, this 25% reduction of methane here in California is something that's not like uh, an estimate or so, but it's a precise measurement because there's a market for 
this gas and it's actually going into tanks and, and moving vehicles. Um, so there we actually know very precisely what happens. Uh, in the case of enteric emission uh, reductions, for example, it's more difficult. Uh, as scientists, um, we have looked at a hundred different products that would use enteric and methane. Um, or enteric methane being the methane emitted, the belching. That's belched out, That's belched out by cattle and other ruminants. Um, and of the 100, 95 didn't work. Think about that. But five did work. And here they, they did work between 10 to 50%. So significant reductions. So we can quantify that as scientists. We can publish that in the peer-reviewed literature. But then a farmer uses that on the farm. How in the world does that farmer now uh, validate that uh, by feeding that to his or her cattle, uh, he has reduced methane by 30% or so. He cannot. He can only point at the papers of scientists like myself who have published that. And it's even worse with sequestration. There it gets really difficult to quantify how much carbon has been stored and kept in the ground. Um, you know, but uh, I think we have to have uh, some trust in the system, okay, where, where scientists investigate something, publish that, and then farmers um, uh, use these practices and conservation agencies and so on, they, they have to put one and one together. A farmer himself or herself cannot always prove how much carbon they reduce and or keep in the ground. Debbie, that's where you, uh, <laughs> that's where the rubber meets the road for you, because you have to provide that uh, confidence and trust to the companies that are part of the consortium, going to be buying these credits, uh, energy companies, I assume, airlines uh, and the like. Uh, can you do that? Uh, and what's it going to take when, as for yeah. farmers to do that? Yeah, so um, we, do, we do know that, you know, as Frank and, and Barb and Marty pointed out, we know um what the scientific basis for quantifying greenhouse gas emissions is. Um, I think soil carbon currently is the most daunting. And um, it, frankly, we use integrated soil carbon um, quantification approaches. So we require both soil sampling and modeling. And then we model nitrous oxide and methane. And we quantify uncertainty because in ecosystem service markets, you are selling intangible products that are allowing in some instances, in this case of voluntary carbon markets or offset mark, uh, compliance grade offset markets, you're allowing someone else to emit a ton of greenhouse gas for an emission reduction you undertook on the farm. So the credits need to be fungible. We need to be able to quantify them and characterize their uncertainty. ESMC is taking on the role in our national scale program of doing the quantification working with verification bodies and certification bodies to certify the credits. And they are outcomes-based. Uh, practices are not enough of a signal. The markets pay for outcomes. And I think the other important thing is, um, it was mentioned a couple of times, we have to have a better idea of what is happening where across the landscape. There are some places where we can have significant impact through soil carbon and other places and other production systems where methane and nitrous oxide will actually be much uh, better mitigation opportunities. So unless we're actually tracking what's happening at regional scales um, and quantifying that over time and, and looking back to see what moved the needle, we really won't be able to get better. So we're really attempting to do that, hmm. uh, take on a great national scale quantification approach. 
We have a couple of questions, some questions rolling in. I want to get to in a second, but Marty, we have not talked about nitrous oxide. We talked about methane. Uh, the challenge there is uh, capturing the, the, the biogas uh, and then the uh, reducing the emissions on the front end of the uh, cow. Nitrous oxide is actually the biggest source of uh, greenhouse gas emissions, as we, as we all know. Um, and it comes from fields, comes from nitrogen fertilizer, and a lot of it comes from corn. Uh, where are we in terms of in, in what kind of uh, progress can we make uh, realistically, Marty? In terms of uh, reducing, can we get to that zero even? Well, okay. we can do much better than zero, much better than that zero. That's, this is to Debbie and, uh, and Barbara Frank's points. We can make at the at field level, we have the potential to be, to, to dramatically reduce, not just beyond zero, to, re, to reduce uh, human global warming potential. Uh, through nitrous oxide management and mitigation. Recognize that nitrogen is money poured into the field. Farmers pay a huge amount for that money or for that nitrogen, putting it on the field, and every gram of nitrogen that goes into the atmosphere is N2O is money lost. So there's an economic incentive immediately for farmers not to leak that nitrogen out of the system. The reason it's lost is very complex. The soil microbiology is very complex for what happens, and the, and it's also it's it's a, it's very inconsistent. That's what makes it hard to manage and mitigate. So what we have to have is an innovation in how we provide nitrogen fertilizer to our crops. And that innovation is occurring today. We're seeing a huge transformation in uh, biotechnology for uh, nitrogen fixation, fixing com microbial communities in the rhizome, rhizosphere for corn, where we can reduce exogenous nitrogen application by as much as 50% without a yield penalty, still get 200 bushels an acre of corn with half the nitrogen, exogenous nitrogen applied with these nitrogen fixing communities that are integrated into the rhizosphere or the root zone for the corn. Think about that. That alone is going to transform nitrous oxide emissions. And I'm going to remind you, the reason nitrous oxide emissions are such a problem isn't the mass of nitrogen. It's the fact that it has over 180 times the impact of just CO2. So it's the impact of it. So reducing a gram per gram amount, yeah, if every gram of uh, every portion you reduce has 180 times the value uh, over CO2. So it's incredibly powerful. And that's just within the, the, uh, uh, within the rhizosphere of our crop production systems, our manure management systems have even uh, stronger capacity to manage and mitigate because we have uh, we control and, and contain that manure, and so there are other ways to uh, within, and that's Frank's area of expertise, not mine. Uh, so I think we have uh, profound opportunities uh, with nitrogen. I'm very excited about it. Time release nitrogen uh, is another mechanism so that we don't have to top dress and side dress uh, and put. Uh, twice the amount of nitrogen for risk management over uh, the soil so that it has to last 180 days uh, in, in the soil so that we can actually have uh, um, uh, uh, nitrogen available to the crops when it needs it. So all sorts of technologies are emerging that are going to transform this. And they're already in the field now. This is not some futuristic daydream. They're in the field now. Again, that was part two of three of the AgriPulse Ag and Food Policy Summit that I was a part of last week. We have more of those audio bits rolling out. So folks, be sure to keep up with us at agnewsdaily.com and follow along with us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at agnewsdaily to stay informed on all things ag 
food policy. I, I think we cover quite a bit um, personally. So folks, be sure to follow us there. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.